You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Think of romance. I don't think of anybody more than Terry South, uh, who's been researching friendships and male friendships and bromances. Yeah, I, I Googled how to make a friend. And there's been a recent study published. Oh, really? Yeah. So what have you learned about friend making? So, now, now this is, you, you did this because your wife said, Terry, we need to get you a friend. She said that multiple times. She's yeah. also said that she needs to make more friends because yes. we both get so caught up in what yeah. we're doing. You're we in never, your life. And all I want to do is sit in my house, pull the blinds, and get through the <laughs> 200 shows recorded on my DVR. But no one wants me to do that. Yeah, so. that's, yeah. They're what are you going to do? You. Jeffrey Hall, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Kansas, set out mm. to find the answer to the study, to the question of how long does it take to make a friend. Okay. 355 adults yeah. who had recently moved and were getting to know a new acquaintance were asked a series of questions. They described how much time they spent with, that, with a person, how they typically spent those hours together, and how close they felt over time. He also, Hall, the professor, also asked 112 university freshmen who had just moved to their college town, similar questions, went through their experience, and here's what he found. Okay. It takes about 40 to 60 hours of time spent together in the first few weeks after meeting for people to form a casual friendship. 40 to 60 hours. For casual friendship to occur. Okay. To transition from casual friend to friend, it takes about 80 to 100 hours of together time. Wow. That's a lot of friends. Yeah. And then it says for friends to become good or best friends, which I was told once that as an adult male, you never have. You can't have a best friend anymore. You have a wife. Okay. Who told you that? A guy I used to work with. Okay. That was funny. So for friends to become good or best friends, it takes about 200 or more hours spent together hmm. to have a best friend. A bestie. Now, you would think a best friend would be someone you'd want to confide in. Yeah. So maybe the 200 hours is to build that level of trust where you feel that person is someone right. who you could talk to and they would, you know, respect yeah. your, you know, thoughts and give you ideas that See? you'd respect. Okay. That's interesting. Different stages of a person's life may require more time or less time investment. Uh, he says, would a single young adult from form friendships faster than a married middle-aged person? That's a question Hall can't answer with this study. Yeah. But probably you would think just because the married middle-aged person has other things going on than living in a dorm. Right. Well, okay, what do you what do you think about this? Because uh, it seems like I if I'm at work all day, I have a bunch of guys around me, people around me. I feel like they're my friends. Right. And it says here hours spent together strongly predicted friendship closeness, but not if that time was spent at work or in school. Places where people weren't interacting by choice. Ah. You have to make the choice to interact to form friendships. Which explains huh. why you feel like you have this friendship at work, yeah. but when you see that person outside of work, it's weird. Well, it's totally weird. Because you're like, whoa. Do we hug or do we that, that's that's where, That's where I have my bubbles, right? I have yeah. work. I have home. When they cross... Yeah, weird stuff. It's like in Ghostbusters. You don't cross the stream from the the the, the echo yeah. packs, right? From the the. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's going to blow up. There's explosions. It causes <laughs> Never problems. Never cross your stream. Never cross the streams. The best way to spend time seemed to be just hanging out together, watching TV or playing video games. People became closer by doing things they liked and enjoyed each other's company while doing it. Yeah. Whereas work, you're you have to be here. 
But now, okay, so watch though. But I think it's more still compartmentalized because if I go to work, I have those people I hang out with at work. Right. Then if I go and then if I want to choose, I mean, I don't see where I would be like, hey, I'm just going to now choose to call Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy and I are going to just go sit at the park and talk. I don't. Yeah. So so it seems like what I would call Jimmy to do is, hey, do you want to go to a game? Right. Do you want to go to on a bike ride? So it's still based on a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's not based on you. No. It's still based on what we will do together. Right. But that hobby will grow as you spend more time together than the friendship grows separate from necessarily the hobby. Yeah, but I'm only – I mean yeah, if, I know. If, if you can't go to the game, I'll, I'm still going. I'll just – I'll take somebody someone else. else. Yeah. It's not like, oh, okay, I'll just sit home then because you can't go. I, right. It just seems like it's he says, different for me. Uh, time spent talking didn't make people particularly closer, but chatting was better when they were striving to make a connection. Hmm. Catching up with their friends, asking them how their day was going and how their day was going and joking around. Small talk, on the other hand, seemed to be the enemy of friendship. People who talked about mundane topics became less close over time. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. As far as <laughs> small talk's boring is what they're saying. Right. And it's what you do when you're stuck in a party and you can't leave. You talk about the weather. Well, and isn't small talk really interpreted individually? Like, oh, my heavens, all he talks about is cars. Yeah. That seems like small talk to me. But for two people that love cars, it's nirvana. Mm. It's heaven on earth. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think this is uh... – No, I think I think it's accurate. But I um, – again, I'm a guy that's a fairly sensitive guy. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, maybe it's because I, my living is talking. Mm. So what I really want in a friend is them to just shut their mouth. And listen? No. Oh. Just, let's just sit in quiet. Sit in silence. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't sound very friendly. <laughs> trying but, to, I'm trying to, we're reaching out to this uh, professor. See yeah. See if he'll join us that. and you can explore I think, more of these I think questions. it'd be fascinating. What I want in a friend is like a mute. Hmm. Just somebody that – and See, I, don't, I don't want to talk. I just want us to sit there. And in effect, I have that by not really associating with anyone. It's yeah. just quiet. It's I know, great. but then we worry about you. No, it's fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm happy. I, I feel as if I'm fulfilled. Yeah. If I need something more, there's a video game I can play. Yeah. Great. You can go Fortnite people. <laughs> You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things I studied in my doctoral program is – uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory, more than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory, which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You don't you don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation – I mean as you would know them today – but that that symbol, that I that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over the time end up being created, which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of Kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol, but if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, 
Why I bring this up is that I we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there's certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times, they, they may be told, but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, resiliency is that ability to to bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state. And so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories, by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard. Life, there are some struggles, but it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key, it's the response to the trial. Um, It might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they, you know, are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, but it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story. When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are? Everybody, you may have had that moment when, you know, you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system, and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that, you know what, I, I'm i better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably, you can, you could be a doctor or you could, you could get into this school that you want to get into, and you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a, you know, a mathematician or a scientist. That's the who am I story. And I think kids, especially like my college kids, need to know how I came to know who I was. So I try to share that story. Another story you could share is the what matters most story, like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values. And you just share the story. I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course. My entire life, uh, I was always taught you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course, and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday, and I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down, basically, a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then, as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value it. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I, I need to – I need to – not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. (laughs) Anyway, they looked at me like, okay. But that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. 
But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking, and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Teens use smartphones successfully to do almost anything. In fact, everything. They learn new skills, communicate with friends, do research, catch up uh, on their Pokemon catches. But are smartphones useful for helping teens maintain weight loss? Dr. Chad Jensen of Brigham Young University studies, um, um, he studied prevention of and the intervention for childhood and adolescent obesity. He conducted the survey and study using smartphones and he's come up with some pretty interesting research that I think as parents we all need to know about. Dr. Chad Jensen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. This was, I think, a, an important study today because everybody, I'm using it even right now to try to watch my calories and, and input my weight. My Apple Watch helps me know how many steps I've taken. We're using a lot of technology, but you're finding out from your study that um, – if we had to choose between maybe having a coach, a professional, a doctor, a nutritionist to meet with versus just our phones, one of them might serve us a little better long-term to lose weight. Talk to us about your research, Chad. That's right. We know that teens use smartphones a lot. In fact, the national uh, data suggests around 60 texts per day for most teens, so that's a lot of text messaging, mm. and even a lot more social media use. So we, we think this might be a productive avenue for intervening at the level of weight control. You know, about 30% of teens are either overweight or obese, and that's a large percentage of the population, probably the most common chronic pediatric condition we know of. So this is a, a large group that could benefit from some help with uh, with managing their weight. We've uh, We've conducted intervention trials for some time now, and we've recently started using smartphones as part of our interventions. We're really interested in whether smartphones can increase the efficacy of weight control interventions uh, and help teens to keep the weight off long term. That's one of the challenges that the the uh, research in adolescent weight control faces is we're often able to help teens lose weight successfully, but keeping the weight off is is more of a challenge once people are finished with treatment. Mm. And, and so you targeted teens and you then, I guess you, you basically broke it into two different approaches. Talk about how right. you tested it. That's right. So this, uh, this, this is a pilot trial. We're interested in sort of a, a proof of concept for using smartphones for this purpose with teens because very little work has been done in this area. Surprisingly, more has been done with, with adults than with teenagers, um, which is surprising given that teens use smartphones so frequently. Uh, so our approach was to evaluate the use of the smartphone in conjunction with in-person treatment, where one of our clinical psychology doctoral students provided an intervention to the teens in a group format over a 12-week period. They had smartphones during that time also, so we were texting them three times a day. They were, they were uh, recording their diet and physical activity using a self-monitoring app, um, and those components comprised the smartphone portion of the intervention. Now, after the 12 weeks were finished, we were interested in whether teens could keep the weight off over the long term. So we, we just used the electronic intervention at that point, just text messaging and electronic monitoring. Now, we had access to their self-monitoring data, so we tailored all those text messages based on things that they were doing well and things they weren't doing so well. So we'd send text messages such as, remember to eat breakfast this morning, or providing suggestions for healthy snacks that could replace less healthy snacks. Hmm. 
so uh, so we're you know we think that there's real promise in using um, smartphones to be to be able to provide in the moment intervention that's tailored uh, given the the specific individual's unique challenges with controlling their weight was then they would you would send them text messages but were they like on a group chat with with the group that went through the intervention yeah, great question they were not and that's one of the one of our conclusions from our study is we found that that teens were able to uh, lose weight successfully during the intervention the 12 week intervention period in fact they lost between about 2 and 3% of their total body mass which is wow. which is a pretty reasonable uh result However, they weren't able to maintain their success after treatment ended. So there wasn't a wasn't sort of a group chat component. The teens received text messages from our treatment group, but not from one another. And one of the pieces of feedback that we got from the teens was they really wanted more connection with peers their age. So one of our conclusions from the study is that we'd really like to uh, to work on integrating more social support from other teens. Some other groups have done things like you know, Facebook groups for teens who participated in a group together and have already established relationships with each other. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, establishing uh, peer support from people who are already in the peer group of the adolescent themselves. So those are those are some of the things we think might be helpful in helping to maintain weight loss because our, our smartphone intervention alone uh, didn't, didn't help them keep the weight off. Is it... Is it the camaraderie of it? Is it the kind of the teamsmanship of it? Or is it accountability? Were you able to discern? Yeah, I think there's certainly a mix. And our research doesn't really give us data to that to speak to that question. But I think there's solid evidence that um, that social support provides uh, some accountability. Also, uh, someone sort of feeling like you're in this together and sharing uh, ideas and methods that that people have found successful can be quite helpful. So there's sort of multiple ways that social support can be beneficial. You know, one other consideration with our study is that there are some other components of weight control interventions that our that our study didn't provide, um, especially after we were finished with seeing them in person. For example, there's there's some evidence that um, that if you that if you do things like providing them uh, more intervention content in addition to text messages, so for example, one of the one of the adult studies actually sends videos to participants that gives them additional mm. intervention content yeah. uh, later, and you can you can send those as pop-ups on smartphones, which which have been shown to be quite successful. So that's something else that we'd like to look at in the future. It seems like. Um the the benefit of smartphone might also be disruptive right it's so it so disrupts your life that and if you if i got enough text messages that were motivational at times i guess educational informative supportive yeah. and accountable i might be so busy i don't go to the fridge as much correct that's right and and one of our strategies has been to intervene at meal times so all of our text messages huh. were sent around the times when meals would be eaten um and so that that a strategy sort of gives them reminders that are relevant to their specific um specific needs at that moment the other piece is we've typically tailored these messages uh, in person so our clinicians are the ones who send them the text messages uh, which which in some ways limits our ability to intervene with larger groups of teens mm. so one of our one of the directions we've moved now is having um having automated text messages that are computer generated and tailored based on the individual's self monitoring data oh interesting yeah so as you gather and collect new data on them you right. You can adapt the. Yeah, and we can look at trends to see if 
a certain type of message is more effective for that person. If if so, we'll send more of that kind of message, right? Hmm. I guess there's cell phones are going to become. I, as you're talking, I'm sitting there thinking, man, wait till some of these for profit organizations that are helping trying to get people to lose weight hear about your study. They'll they're going to jump on and you know use tech. Yes use tech as an additive tool. Yeah, I think that's correct. And a number of the large national organizations that are that are for-profit weight loss programs already have applications that are designed to meet this function. Uh, these programs don't frequently serve teens, however. We find mm. very few teens that are enrolled in programs like this. So I, I think from our perspective, we, you know, we, we believe that we could reach a much larger proportion of teens and help them with weight loss. One of the challenges that we that we face is that parents are less likely to identify their child as overweight or obese. Um, often that's left to physicians to sort of alert parents to that problem. Hmm. Um, and sometimes uh, that step doesn't even happen. So, so one of our, you know, one of the things that motivates us is we find that if teens are able to, to maintain a healthy weight into adulthood, that they, they usually stay on that trajectory. Whereas if they're, if they remain overweight or obese throughout adolescence, they're likely to be overweight or obese as adults. Hmm. So we find this to be a really important period for intervention. If we can help teens establish healthy habits now, uh, then they're much more likely to be healthy into adulthood. Uh, it's interesting that parents, we, we do, we tend to have, a, I guess, weight goggles on where we can't see, right. we can't see the, I mean, even if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, you know, you're, you've put on some weight, you, I will always walk out thinking, no, duh. Get right. off my back. Right. Jeez. Right. But I can imagine if you're telling me my child is uh, also gaining weight, uh, overwhelming probably. Yeah, certainly. It's, it's, it's difficult news for parents to hear, and often they don't, they don't know where to turn and where to go for help. So one of our goals is to, to help provide parents a healthy option for helping their child to manage weight. You know, some parents will, will turn to fad diets or other extreme means to help their teens lose weight, and, and we don't think that's necessarily the best approach, especially given the developmental processes going on in adolescence. So, so our, our approach is definitely a lifestyle approach where we're asking teens to do things that are healthy no matter what your weight is, um, and the goal is sort of um, a little bit of weight loss, and in some cases, you don't even necessarily need to lose weight. Maintenance is sometimes sufficient because teens are, already, are still growing, yeah. and they sort of grow into that weight in some respects. Yeah, so if you could just quit the spread of it and quit yes, the growth of exactly. weight, then you might be able to grow into it. Precisely. We're speaking with Dr. Chad Jensen. Um, he is a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Kansas, and he researches um, prevention and intervention programs for childhood, adolescent, obesity, and related disorders. We will take a break, come back, talk more about the psychology of weight gain, weight loss, and what are some things we can be doing as parents to make sure that we, uh, we are on top of it a little bit more? Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Our goal is to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back. Friends, the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, fighting teenage obesity, it is one of the biggest uh, issues that our kids are dealing with when it comes to health. 
And it it's not going away unless we as parents step up and get real about what is happening. Um, so to, to help us through this, Dr. Chad Jensen joins us by phone, again, a professor of psychology at Brigham Young University, and he researches and addresses prevention and intervention programs for childhood and adolescent obesity. Chad, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Happy to be with you. When we – there is a psychology to to eating and to weight loss and – um, I've been talking to family members who I know are like the most disciplined humans on earth. And if if they made a decision to quit eating or drinking anything, they'd be able to do it. And then I know others that just like food and it means home and it makes them feel warm and comfy inside. Talk about how our head impacts our food choices and our ability to stick to a diet. Certainly. The food reward piece is a real challenge because most of us prefer to eat high-calorie foods, right? There's right. there's sort of an evolutionary basis to that, and we know that under conditions of scarcity, there was an adaptive quality to sort of preferring those foods and eating a lot of them when they were available. But now our environment sets us up to, to gain weight because food is so widely available in large quantities and relatively cheaply. So so I, I think when you consider how the how the brain impacts people's decisions is there's there's a strong reward component and um, and it's it's difficult to sort of inhibit the impulse to eat those high calorie foods. I think that the the science is pretty clear that that the thing that's most helpful is setting up the environment so that you're more likely to be successful. So Thanksgiving dinner is a great example of this. There's a lot of variety, lots of calories all there at one meal. And um, most of us consume way more calories than than we probably would to feel full at most other meals because right. there's such high variety in high quantities and sort of everybody's going along with consuming lots of food. Uh, a, a contrasting perspective is if you have um, – if you have a house full of healthy foods, fruits and vegetables, and fewer high-calorie foods, then, then you're going to eat the foods that are available to you. So one of our approaches with intervening with teens and families is, is simply to help them shift the, the quality of the foods that they have available in the house because that really drives what people eat. And, you know, I think that the, from a psychological perspective, our goal is to make it easier to make healthy choices. So, so it, it's not a choice between cookies and apples. The, the choice is between apples and pears and carrots. Mm. Um, and I think those, some of those decisions that we make um, in advance of our food decision-making are really powerful. A great illustration of this is if you go to the store feeling hungry, right, you're likely to buy high-calorie foods. <laughs> Whereas if you go after you've, you've had lunch, uh, you're more likely to buy the things that you had on your list. Stick to right. the list. Yeah, and then it's – I've noticed it turns into just a financial decision. Like, oh, okay, we don't need that. Certainly. We don't need this. Um, yeah. Is it is there a typical construct for a child that is um, facing obesity? Do they have – do they tend to be introverts, extroverts, or is it cross-cultural, cross-everything? Yeah. yeah, it really does cut across culture. There's there's no specific personality factors that we've established there there seems to be some indication that impulse control might be one factor that's influential. This means your ability to sort of see something that looks appealing, but to override that impulse in the in the service of a larger goal, right? Hmm. So instead of eating that food, I'm, my, my goal is to, to control my weight, so I'm not going to consume it, right? That impulse control 
develops over adolescence, and some younger adolescents have have uh, have less than when they get older. So I think that that sort of reinforces this concept that that we don't want to sort of make a, make a decision for teens that's difficult for them. Rather, that we we would make it easy by saying these are the foods that are available, and you may choose from any of these healthy options. And we we provide foods that are higher in calorie, uh, less frequently, and in in portion sizes that are that are not going to lead to overconsumption. Hmm. And um, I guess that's it's interesting when you talk about impulse control because it's it seems like it collapses on itself. The more sugar you eat, the more sugar you need, the more sugar you want, the more sugar you crave. Yeah, that's right. And it just it just kind of falls in on itself. And there's some evidence that it. It varies situationally. So Thanksgiving dinner, you don't have a lot of uh, social social reward for controlling your impulses, right? In fact, the opposite is true. So I think that you you have to think about situations like that. And one of our intervention strategies is to help teens consider difficult situations and how they're going to deal with them, right? How are they going to make sure that they, they don't overconsume at those events, hmm. birthday parties, celebrations? We have so much cultural pressure around these events that's sort of like eat, eat, eat some more. And if you're, if you're going to be successful with, with weight control, you sort of have to strategize in advance. Could I bring something that's going to be healthy? How am I going to make sure that I have just a serving of that food rather than three or four? Mm. Because much of our societal expectation is eat all you want, right? It's time to celebrate. And we, we believe it that celebrations are important and you should be able to participate in all of those things, but you just have to be smart about it and uh, moderation in all things. Is, um, is there anything to the psychology of uh, fighting the urge just drives that makes the urge stronger? So, yeah, because this, we, we see a lot of, I've heard a lot about that with pornography issues and, um, you know, instead of just always making it about suppressing the need, suppressing yep. the need, it might be better to understand where it's coming from. And like you're saying, get conditioned and pre-trained and yeah. skills. Yeah, I think that's right. You, you can only you can only sort of inhibit impulses for so long with extended exposure. And and there's some evidence that that ability actually declines when you're tired. So as the day goes on, there's sort of less ability to inhibit impulses. And, and that suggests that you being aware of the fact that you're not always going to be able to control impulses sort of pushes you in the direction of, of setting things up in advance so you're more likely to be successful. Hmm. How does weight gain um, and weight and obesity impact mental health? Yeah, that, there's, there's pretty, pretty uh, consistent evidence in teens and in adults that, uh, that the weight's associated with a number of, of outcomes that are not great, including poor academic performance, more uh, feelings of social rejection, some increased risk for bullying from peers. So these are these are a lot of potential negative consequences, and it's it's good to be aware of those. And we you know we work with a lot of a lot of teens who've experienced some of those problems. I think that our approach is is uh, we try to focus on the positive and and note that there you know this isn't your weight is not does not define you as a person, um, and. And rather than focus exclusively on weight loss, our goal is to help teens be healthy. And I think that's one good, uh, strong message for parents is that if your focus is exclusively on weight, then that can lead to lots of negative self-perceptions and, and potential for, uh, for, for difficult social interactions and, and things like that. So I, I, we typically advise parents to, to focus more on the whole family living a healthy lifestyle 
And everything we do focuses on families because teens are still highly influenced by their parents and families. Um, Friends become increasingly important, but parents still model for children, adolescents rather, um, healthy behavior. And and, uh, especially they engineer the environment so that it's likely to, to lead to success. I think that's our one of our messages to parents early on in treatment is your role is an environmental engineer more than uh, than a micromanager yeah. uh, we don't we don't want parents to be constantly uh, criticizing every bite of food their teen takes rather we want them to set up the environment so that the teens able to make healthy choices within the within the limits that the parent has set up in the home environment and especially it just seems with food because I could see a mother who's had a lot of history fighting her own weight issues, struggling about it, having a lot of anxiety over it. And then she sees a child starting to gain weight and they become controlling, anxious and start mirroring that onto the child. Right. And then the child can develop a lot of stigma around any of their eating choices. And unfortunately, we we do know that uh, that. Emotional eating is a significant problem for teens who who adopt that mindset that you know n- now eating becomes a, a way to cope with distressing emotions, and that obviously is counterproductive. We'd prefer to help them identify some some more healthy ways to cope with stress and having parents avoid the criticism and um, and sort of over-intrusiveness is really an important part of our treatment approach. And I guess that goes back full circle to your study, um, why smartphones are great, they're supportive, they're additive, but having a really strong maybe coach, someone to be accountable to, and a network of people that they can talk to, even I guess other than family would be great. That's right. You need the support and and our uh, so our, our study also had a qualitative component where we conducted interviews with all the teens after the treatment was over, and uh, and the majority of them reported that they they really wanted more social support hmm. as as part of their efforts to lose weight. And I think the the smartphones are great, but they're not a panacea. And absent other social support networks, I, I think that our evidence suggests that they that it, it loses effectiveness without that in-person piece. And, and so I think we're, we're sort of thinking, how do, we, how do we make this social support practical without continuing treatment with them for a lengthier period of time? Because the, the cost is a factor and our ability to reach as many adolescents as possible um, sort of pushes us in the direction of finding ways to do this that are, that are uh, natural within the teen's own environment. Yeah. And, and, Boy, I could just see sharing best practices. Hey, have you tried this recipe or whatever? This is, um, man. And again, it also is so intuitive. It seems like like social media is just so intuitive to our children today that it could help. But again, good to know it's not – smartphones aren't going to take the weight off. That's right. Not by themselves. No. Uh, especially for teens. I think there's, there are a few adult studies that have suggested that standalone smartphone interventions have been successful. But one of our observations is that when we saw teens in person, they were really consistent with self-monitoring, which means keeping track of all your food and exercise. Mm. One of the strongest predictors of success in weight loss is self-monitoring. Uh, when we saw them in person, they were, really, they were really consistent in self-monitoring, whereas when we didn't see them in person, they really dropped off in, yeah. their, in their tracking. And, and we think that's one of the strong reasons uh, for why they were less able to keep the weight off. And uh, social support can help people to stay on track with self-monitoring, right? They, they could get natural rewards, sort of competition between right. peers can be helpful. The other piece is there's uh, some research that suggests that 
implementing gamification into self-monitoring apps can be helpful so it, it becomes something fun and enjoyable rather than something tedious yeah. and burdensome. I love that. Well, and boy, it all it all helps. Yes. It can all help. Well, Dr. Chad Johnson, thank you so much for your great research and insight. Uh, I, I truly believe you've changed some lives today. I know you changed mine. It's a it's interesting. Self-reporting, self-monitoring is my biggest issue as an adult. If I don't tell anybody, if I don't have to tell anybody about it, I'm probably less inclined to stick to it. Great lessons helping you live longer, folks. That's the goal. We'll take a break. Be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio. Good friend of the show, Dr. Brian Willoughby, assistant professor in the School of Relate of, uh, at uh, Family Life at BYU. And um, he's also a director. Oh, he's director of the Relate Institute, assistant professor in the School of Family Life. But I, I've been going over your site for weeks now, Brian. Um, Brian is a very busy professor, expert in you know marriage formation, cohabitation, dating, marital attitudes, sexuality, and ruggedly good-looking and incredible shape. <laughs> you know, my wife talks about when I come on your show. <laughs> she's like, every time you're on, Matt keeps talking about how good-looking you are. You're, you are. Here's the deal. I, and you bring up one of the best issues ever. What happens when parents don't like who their kids are dating? Right, which it's, never happens. Happens regularly yeah. if they date. Right. See, my, my issue is more like, I got to get my kids dating. But what do you do? Because this is important, right? Or is right. it? Do, does it matter if, really, does it matter if parents are on board? It does. Okay. Yeah. It matters in terms of what we call social support, yeah. which we know is really important in relationships that when we have a relationship, we need all the resources we can oh. get. Yeah. Right. We we need we need help. We need advice. We need counsel sometimes, and so we we turn to our social network to get that. Yeah. And that could be friends. It could be family. And family is one of the most important social resources we have. Right. We go to mom and dad, particularly for young couples when we talk about marriage. Is it's not just advice and counsel anymore. A lot of times it's financial support. Mm. It's support for getting education. Like modeling. Modeling. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really critical place. And so when parents don't approve of who we're dating or who we're married to, sometimes we lose some of those resources. Yeah. And you need – you. it's almost like you need more eyes on the prize, right? I mean, and if you can trust right. your parents' eyes, but if they come out inherently against, mm-hmm. then it creates this schism. Good. Yes. There's, there's conflict yeah. because now do I trust my own judgment about this person mm-hmm. or do I trust my parents' judgment and, and how do I reconcile? Mm. And they're at this age anyway where – they might want to be independent. And you don't even know her, Mom. Right. Yeah, they might be independent. They might be wanting to just rebel right. against Mom and yeah. Dad, right? So as soon as Mom and Dad says, hey, I don't like that guy or that girl, right. oh, great. That's that's making that's them so even more true. attractive to me now. It's And it's easy to just kind of, you know, th- not worry about it. It doesn't matter. But you're eventually going to – you could marry these people. Right. Yeah, and it, it actually – what can happen sometimes is when you're dating someone – it feels easy to ignore. Okay, mom and dad have, have yeah. told me it doesn't matter, you know. But once you're married, it starts to really matter oh. because now it's not just about that approval, 
but it's about intersecting that person into my life, into my extended family, because now they're in-laws, they're family. We have to negotiate holidays now uh. and birthdays, and and the decisions that my parents make affect my spouse, yeah, too. And so now we have to negotiate all that. And if we start with this place <laughs> of you didn't like that person to begin with, those negotiations and that transition can become really hard. Well, I've I've been to weddings where there was discontent. I've been. I've worked with families after to have discussions for how we can heal this. I mean, it doesn't go away. No, it doesn't. In fact, what I what I tell all of my students is for a lot of newlyweds, their first major conflict is around it's, holidays. It's totally true. Right? Because it's around the in-laws. It's yeah. now we have to negotiate whose house we're we going to for Christmas. How are we going to negotiate these rituals between the two of us? And, and how do we manage these emotions? Where do you live? Right. And do you have children? And do the children go visit grandma and grandpa? Yeah. And it's hard to negotiate all those things. And and the approval then kind of adds one more layer of complexity to it. Well, and so as a parent, what am I supposed to do? Because I really may not know the person very well, but I may not like what you're turning into with them. Right. Like you're certainly – wow, you're staying out later. Yeah. We used to always have you home by 11. Exactly. Yeah. And and like so many other things with parenting – this is one of those things where one of the biggest mistakes parents make is they they don't start having the conversation – so they don't like something. True. Right? You've, well, you've dated all these people and I've liked them all. So I haven't had to say anything to you. We haven't had, had any converse, right. conversations about my opinion or, or any feedback I have. But I don't like this one. So now we're going to sit down and now we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And so for the for the person, the, the child, that feels very reactive. It feels like you were never there for all these successes I've had. And now you want to be here just to tell me what not to do. And so it's oh. got to be something that oftentimes even from a very early age, even pre pre-dating, um, the actual dating phase, is I need to have conversations with my kids about what does marriage mean? What do relationships mean? What do I feel like a healthy relationship should look like? And hopefully I'm modeling that for them. But if if we have a relationship where I've been talking to you about relationships for your whole life, mm. now my feedback hopefully means a little bit more than just, well, I don't like this one. Oh, so yeah. That's, that's what you're striving for yeah. is, is you want open communication. Everyone's family at that point. At that point. Is if you really are taking seriously the son-in-law or daughter-in-law label. I need to treat as a parent that person as a son or daughter and have a relationship that's independent to the one that I have with my actual biological child. And, And then hopefully, as we were talking about earlier, having that perception then that my job as a parent at that point is to support both of you in this in this marital relationship. And so I'm going to try to facilitate that as much. Mm. Even if you're doing something that I don't like yeah. or I disagree with, I need to support the two of you. And like almost as – because I could see that if I could support my son-in-law to be healthier and know, and let him know I care about him and I love him, then I'm there for him and I'll use my resources to help him. Man, I'm really only helping my daughter anyway. Right. I'm just strength, – I'm strengthening the family. Unit. Right. Exactly. That's powerful. And But why do we struggle with that? It's almost – we're still almost competing. It's a competitive model instead of cooperative. Yeah, it's it's because it's a shift for parents, right? Yeah. It's, I've spent 20-plus years with my sole purpose to be support you as an individual. Right? My son or daughter, I'm going to support you. I'm going to try to do what's best for you. And now you're at the stage of life where you're making independent decisions. I basically get to see – and this is where I think a lot of parents struggle – I get to see if you're going to make the right decisions, mm. and it's a referendum on if I was a good parent. So when I see you pick someone that I don't think is right for you, right. in some ways that triggers my personal anxiety that what did I do wrong? Yeah. One thing I'm seeing – like so when my daughter – she's been married three years. But when they would have an issue, a fight, her inclination would be to come back to mom and dad mm-hmm. 
to get sustained, I guess. And then, but what we would do usually is love her, turn her really quickly, and push her back yes. into the fight. Yes. And and, but I could see how you could not, you know, protect oh, yes. him, take a side. Yeah, I mean, you've you've got the benefit of all your education, yeah, no exactly. skills, right? But, but you got if you don't send them back, yeah, you got to send them back. You have to avoid what's called coalition building. There you go. Which is where I'm going to go back to my parents because I know my parents will be on my side, and so if I have a conflict with my spouse, I go back to mom and dad. They're going to make me feel good. Yeah, we can team up against my spouse, and that now what's not happening mm-hmm. is now I'm not working with my spouse. So as a parent, you have to do exactly what you said. I have to support and love and say, that sounds really hard. I'm sure that's right. really, you know, I'm going to be emotionally validate, supportive yeah. and validate. But now I think you should probably go back, right? Well, mm-hmm. well Dad, what do you think nope. I should do? Nope. I don't know. <laughs> I I'm know. not married to I'm you. I'm not married to you. You need to go talk to your spouse and figure out what's best. I love that. And it's funny now because they'll listen to me, like they'll ask for my advice together, and then They'll hear what I'm saying, but and then you'll see them looking at each other like, "See, I told you that." Yeah. Now, you, oh, you, just because your dad's saying it, you'll do it. But yeah. I said that earlier, and yeah. it's it's growing up, really. Yeah. And and sometimes you know, some parents will take that advice and say, "So what you're telling me is I can never give my kids advice anymore." Well, that's not it. No. You can even give them advice, but what I would say is is get both of them together and say, hey, next yeah. time you're coming to visit us, if you're struggling with this, let's sit down. And again, I'm not playing therapist, right. but if you just want one other person to kind of hear what you're th- going yeah. through, give you some suggestions, let me do it for both of you because I care about both of you. It's the skills, that, which is what Relate brings too. I mean, it's the skills that they lack. They don't, this is just maturity. Right. And, but parents don't get in the way or you're going to weaken the plant. Exactly. Right? If you're the gardener that's standing over this plant all day, it'll never get sunlight. It'll never get what it needs. Yeah. It, get and, out of the way. And in these young marriages where parents are oftentimes put in these situations, this couple is building the foundation that they're going to build off of for the next 40, 50, 60 years, hopefully. Yeah. And so it's critical that they're establishing these healthy patterns. If they're establishing the pattern of, we don't deal with it, and I go back to my mom and dad. Well, the reality is, we don't like to talk about this, but you're going to be dead in 20 years. <laughs> the reality right? is, eventually yeah. they're going to have to figure this out. You may be living in my out. basement. Yeah, eventually <laughs> they have to figure out these things, and so that the quicker they can learn those skills to communicate and resolve their conflict on their own with outside support right. and love, right. the better. Love it. See, it's that simple. <laughs> right. It's just just do everything we say. That's 100% right. of the time. That's right. Your it, life will be. Perfect. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. His name is Dr. Brian Willoughby, uh, associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU, also the director of the Relate Institute. Go to the website, relateinstitute.com. Seriously, just go peruse. Take the assessments. Learn, learn, learn. That's what it's all about for all of us. We'll take a break. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, when it comes to uh, talent management, remember, it's always about people management. These are all These are all relationships. And there's always going to be a relationship uh, measurement, as even as uh, he, Mark was taking us through his content um, from the Talent Magnet book. Every one of these ideas he was talking about, a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision, each one of those, and then, by the way, the ability to tell the story, those are all created through interaction. 
You know if you have a better boss by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction. You know, based on it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed. You can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I can't. Uh, I, I I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with uh, with my clients, and as we were talking, the children didn't. It was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening, and the parents. Basically, we're like, oh, please, of course we're listening. And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching, that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very, very real and very upfront. They weren't hiding. They weren't fighting. They weren't flighting. They were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it. And the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this, this, is, this is a pretty typical argument issue that you know, parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt and it's really complicated and I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. It doesn't matter – um, if we don't feel understood, it doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. If the children don't feel understood by their parents, they're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the the future of their organization – um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future, um, then they don't see the future and you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have – if they don't see that their boss is engaged and, and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not going to happen. So – we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people. Because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just, it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. 
you can keep losing talent in your organization and and chalk it up to whatever. But if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then you, it's just not going anywhere. And it, it'll spiral in, to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top, top, top talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach. Don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the most important roles I think we play as as adults, as parents, and I see it in my office a lot as I as I meet with clients. Um, we have a very specific responsibility to help our children find their light, right? To find their gift, to find what they are bringing to the world. And in in doing so, we have a responsibility to bring some hope. And but it takes some discernment. You've got to you've got to figure out with your kids what they can do to um to go attack the world and impact the world and be a positive force in the world. And I wonder if we do enough of it. Because I think we think uh, the schools are going to help our children find themselves and figure out their their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And I, I don't think that's the school's responsibility. I don't think it's your teachers, your children and their teachers' um, job to, to go figure out your child's talents. That, I think, is uniquely the parent's responsibility. Um, and and it, you don't, it doesn't have to be oppressive and scary. It's – it should just be a natural part of life. What do you see your children uniquely gifted to do? What about their personality um, can set them up for a great life? And and you might be worth giving your children this kind of feedback. I have children that are just like me in a way, incredibly optimistic about life. In fact, many times I feel like that's a weakness of mine because I'm so optimistic that, you know, the world can be falling around me and I'm still thinking, hey, we still have a chance. But one of the, the issues I found is um, I, have, I have, for example, children who uh, their friends are all out selling pest control door to door, you know, which, hey, great. I think that's awesome. If you can go make, uh, you know, forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in a summer and then that can support you for a year or two, go do it. I think that's great. I just know that my kids can't do that very well. That's not in their – I mean they could go get it done. But it's not in their wheelhouse of something that they could do comfortably or something that they would enjoy doing. Um, they would have a nervous breakdown <laughs> having to, to you know, talk about pests with people in another state all summer long. But my, I just had a son that went to Colorado to do research, and they still had to go pretty much door to door. But they were doing research. Didn't pay as well. But they – they were giving back to families and, and communities, doing some research for, for um, a program here at BYU. And 
he found his gift. He found his ability. He found something he loves to do. And he's so excited, he's excited to go do it again next summer. But before that, he was battling to try to decide if he should go sell pest control in Oklahoma. And I looked at him and I'm like, would you like to do that? And he's like, not really. And I'm like, then why are you even considering it? We, we need to be the guide on the side for these kids and help them understand their own personality. Now, sure, if he had gone, he would have learned that he's not good at that, that he would have learned that. But he doesn't have to make the mistake or go have the trial if we could guide him a little bit more and help him understand what he's good at, help him understand what he really does well. Is he a communicator? Does he tend to want to be with people or be, be with less people? Is he more of a thinker? And, and start guiding him to what he does well. There's assessments you can take all over the place. Um, and, and, and what are his unique gifts and traits? What does he love to do? What would he spend his time doing anyway? Um, well, he'll just play video games. Great. Okay. So he likes technology. Is he good at technology? Then lean him toward technology. But parents, we need to give our kids some direction. There's nothing more powerful for me than when my wife once told me, I really think that you could be a good like TV reporter or anchor. The minute she said that, I finally had the liberty and the freedom to go after what I wanted to do instead of pretending like I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor because that's what the people in my life did. So parents, let's step up. Let's give our kids a little more direction, a little more insight. You don't have to do it for them, but you can definitely give them some feedback in a loving way, and I think it'll go a long way for the rest of us. Lift the world by lifting our children. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Great information about detoxing your inbox. And really, when you think about it, so much of this is just, you know, it's in your hands. It's in your world. You don't... Part of the technology problem is there's the learning curve, right? And you've got to spend some time getting ahead in it. If you don't get ahead, you're you're really just getting behind. And um, so one of the things that uh, I guess we could we could focus on is maybe instead of just staying at it and going at it, what if we just got really serious as far as managing like the inbox is a great example. Let's go manage our inbox. Let's spend the next month getting ahead in the inbox game and getting everything in our life that comes into the inbox taken care of, getting it scheduled, put in our calendar, handed off to the person it needs to be handed off to, taken care of, and try to zero out the inbox. That's one way to do it. Another way that they're finding out to kind of relieve some stress in your life, you won't believe this because it's it actually seems so counterintuitive. But wives across the world are rejoicing. Apparently, washing the dishes can be a stress reliever. It's a trap. Exactly. I'm pretty sure my wife put somebody up to this. Um, And it's not just because it's a repetitive activity, but according to the Journal of Mindfulness, Florida State University researchers say that those who do dishes mindfully which I don't know very many that do. But those are the people, mindfully doing dishes means that you actually are, you are really smelling the soap. <laughs> now, when I was a kid, if, if you were smelling detergents and soaps, um, you know, they thought you had problems. 
that uh, or if you're like if you're sensing the water temperature and you are you are just present in the dishes, apparently that increases your feeling of inspiration and it decreases your nervousness. Not weird. Just doing the dishes. Uh, Not only that, they found out, but participants who didn't practice mindfulness didn't reap any of the benefits. They say it appears that an everyday activity approached with intentionality and awareness may enhance the state of mindfulness. So anything you do. I have a neighbor that loves to vacuum his house. So every day he'll come home from work and kind of as to get in his Zen state, he will vacuum. There's probably, you know, the hum of the vacuum and it's just the straight lines in the carpet. But he likes it. He really likes it a lot. And so um, maybe what we could do, and this is what we're talking about with uh, detoxing our inbox as well, is being mindful, really meaning that you're going to get your mind actually engaged in the activity. I'm going to be present in it. I love to drive personally uh, that for that very reason because I it, it's it's a great kind of relief for me. It helps me clear my head and it but I have to I can't just go into la la land. And sometimes I listen to stuff and sometimes I just like to see if I can beat people you know to a certain exit. <laughs> anyway, dishes apparently can help you relieve stress. So, ladies. Take the report. We'll post this on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Show. Now you can show your partner. The study was with 51 students, and they had them wash dishes, and they basically taught them how to do it mindfully. And um, it's part of it's just watching your breathing. Part of it's just enjoying it. I'll do dishes all day long if I can watch TV. But any chore, they say. Any chore you can actually use to lower your stress. But you got to be mindful. So, you know, uh, mowing lawns. I love to mow my lawn because it. I really get into a Zen state. <laughs> One time I even fell asleep on my lawnmower. Um, anyway, it's interesting stuff when you think about your life. How, how involved is your head day to day in your life? You know, or do you just get in the routine and you're really not even – present. Being present is part of that key for mindfulness. So I just challenge you today to pick up your game that way. See if you can be a little more present. When your kids are talking to you, put your phone down and just be present in what they're saying. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. With every sport comes the favorite to uh, to win the title, and most recently, the villain as well. What makes a sports team a villain? And is it the title that can be passed around from team to team? Here today to talk about this is Dr. Vasilis Delakis, a professor of marketing at Cal State University San Marcos and the visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports MBA program at San Diego State University. Dr. Delakis, thank you so much for being with us. Um, thank you for having me. So apparently, you know, just as much as we love a winner, we also need to love a villain, some team we can hate. 
Absolutely. It's, it's part of what makes the experience enjoyable. Now, why? What makes it enjoyable, I guess, why do we have to hate them? Well, the, the idea is uh, on, on a broader level that we, we pick sides, and obviously the side we pick are the good guys, and we want the good guys to win. But what makes the victory more exciting and more pleasant is when good triumphs over evil. Mm. So in order to, for that to happen, there must be something that is evil, and that's where, that's where the villains come in play. They, they make the joy of, of the victory much, much higher because now it wasn't just that good one, but that good triumphed over so-called evil. Of course, what is good and what is evil, especially in the context of sport, is highly subjective. Usually my side is the good one and the other side is the evil one. Right. <laughs> it seemed like it seemed like the Golden State Warriors were always kind of the golden child uh, the last couple of years of the NBA. And then they pick up Kevin Durant and they've turned now to the villains. What 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 turned it? Yes, that that, that was a very interesting case because you're absolutely right. The, the Warriors were, were actually quite loved uh, fairly universally. They, they were playing exciting basketball that no matter what team you were rooting for, people would enjoy watching them. Uh, Steph Carey was doing all those great things and, and created such a great following. So they were, they were really the darlings. And, and almost overnight, that, that changed. And uh, clearly, the, the Durant move uh, had a lot to do with it. But uh, on, on, a, on a basic level, there are basically two things that happened that... Uh, uh, sports psychology-wise can explain that turn from darlings to to villains. And one is the dominance aspect. Uh, As much as we liked uh, them for their exciting style of play, they were kind of like the underdog trying to overcome, you know, the the challenges. And it was exciting for them to win the championship, but then they come back the next year and they're breaking records and Mm. basically nobody can beat them. And that kind of started making some fans not like them as much. So that dominance made them less liked because now people are not as excited about seeing them winning. And right. on top of that, they, we have the move from Kevin Durant, which, to, to, be, to be honest, there was nothing wrong done by anybody. Mm-hmm. Neither, neither the Warriors nor Durant did anything wrong. He was a free agent, and he picked the team that he felt was the best for him. And, you know, technically that's, that's how it's normally done by every player, but... Other, other, uh, the fans and the media and other players saw that as a move where the, the superstars are kind of you know teaming up together so they can win more titles. So it almost gave the Warriors the perception of having an unfair advantage over the competition, very similar to what happened when LeBron James went to Miami and they made the, the whole big three with Bosch and Dwayne. Right. So within within basically the summer of the off season what used to be the darlings suddenly became now the the despised villains so the dominance and then and then the other point was this just the just the players the specific player switch well it's it's the perception of what we call unfair advantage oh that's so true case, the unfair advantage is just the team that gets the superstars together mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you can have the perception of unfair advantage when you think a team gets all the calls. So a lot of people hate the Patriots in the NFL. Right. And they think, well, they get away with stuff. You know, they had the spy gate, they had the flayed gate. So, you know, they, they might get a, a call, a controversial call at a game. Uh, Duke basketball is, is a similar situation. Everybody's convinced that there is a conspiracy and Duke gets all the calls. So 
it's kind of that perception of unfair advantage. So when we think somebody has an unfair advantage, we're more likely to vilify them and root against them. Hmm. And I, I guess this, this becomes universal, and, and those two points play out really well. Almost every team I've ever hated were dominant and um, seemed to have some unfair advantage or I mean, I look at the – I don't hate any team really, but um, Alabama football or the SEC seems to have an unfair advantage against everyone else in the country simply because of money. And uh, and all of a sudden you're thinking, how can a regular team in the in, – you know, in college football keep up with this money juggernaut? Well, uh, actually, you brought up the SEC, and that, that's another great example. In this case, you know, the villain is not just a – a specific team, but an entire conference, and everybody who is a fan of a non-SEC school is convinced that SEC is getting preferential treatment right. from, you know, poll voting to to calls in in games. So, uh, the, the irony here is when we talk about unfair advantage, it's something that's quite subjective, perceived, right? Not I necessarily real. All to their favor, but you know. Most of the time, this is not something that is easily proven one way or another. So if I already dislike that team and think of them as the villain, and I think that they're getting unfair advantage, well, guess what? Every time I see a game that there's even remotely a call that could have gone the other way, I say, well, there we go again. See, they got the call. Hmm. So it it really reinforces my perception of them as a villain because I keep seeing them getting getting the unfair advantage and the calls and, and the good players and the money. Yeah. Is it is it good for sports um, to have this kind of d- dichotomistic or dual paradigm going on? Because every team has kind of an arch rival, an arch enemy. Uh, BYU has the University of Utah, and those rivalries have gotten so tense in the past and so kind of misinterpreted that even in basketball they called off this they called off playing with each other or against each other um for years the university of utah said we don't want to play we don't want to get our guys hurt this rivalry is not worth it to us uh it it, it is good for for the leagues in the sense that it creates higher interest and higher interest means uh big um, bigger ratings on television which consequently for the league means a higher uh, TV contract next time they're up for negotiations. So the ratings are important, and traditionally the networks are trying to schedule the so-called villains as much as possible because the villains have a a fairly universal appeal. Um, Basically the idea here is that as a league it is to your best interest when the fans have fairly strong and intense emotional responses to the teams, either positive or negative. Hmm. You just don't want teams that are kind of in the middle. So no offense to the Milwaukee Bucks fans, but you know <laughs> this is kind of like a team that's kind of in the middle. Yeah, they offend no one. <laughs> <laughs> people, people don't hate them, but people don't really care either. So if they're in the NBA Finals, well, there might be some interest because they're like an underdog story or something like that, but it won't attract the same level of interest as a uh, as a villain or a team that's that's well liked. So yeah, I could even see it when, and I, I read it in your article uh, when Kevin Durant left Oklahoma. They um, everyone there's burning his jersey. So <laughs> the hatred is so great they burn his jersey, which means oh they better go buy someone else's jersey. So I mean it probably does promote a lot of movement of you know pair of of the goods of, of marketing. It does, and also it, it increases the likelihood of Oklahoma fans now also watching Golden State Warriors games. True, huh? It wasn't the case. And so to cheer against them. For them, too. 
Yeah. And it's this is really just human nature, isn't it? I mean, it, it seems like psychologically we all need someone to hate. You know, we have a God. We have a devil. We have, you know, the good, the bad. We have the Kardashians. We have all these people that that we just need to not like. Yes. And, and this this is, is, is very, very evident in entertainment. In fact, this theory that, that we're using to explain what's happening in sports was first introduced in, in entertainment. And if you think about entertainment, the, the classic formula is creating good guys and bad guys, having the heroes and the villains, mm. having a struggle between the two. Uh, initially, it might even look like the, the hero is losing and the villain is winning. But then in the end, in most movies, you have that resolution and everything is turning around. Uh, look at Disney. I have four kids, and they, they enjoy Disney movies. And a big part of it is right away. So, so who is the bad person? You know, so right. they want to identify that person, and then they celebrate when when the hero, the protagonist, ends up ends up winning. So this is you're right. This is a basic need psychologically to see to see the good triumph over evil. So. Evil is an important component of that. So as a marketer and as a kind of a sports marketing expert, does this, I guess, do you, do you ever truly market your team as the villain? Or is that appointed by someone outside of your marketing department? Uh, yes, usually it, it, it's very unlikely that you would market a team as a villain, your team as a villain. Um but what has happened is individual people, individual athletes, uh, very cleverly might brand themselves as a villain, so they become more more relevant, and people might talk about them, and they might get more publicity and attention. So you you rarely sit on a on a team level because that might be kind of pushing the envelope, and it might be risky. But on an individual level, uh, athletes might might kind of assume that role and, and sell it. So either they truly are like that or they're playing that role so they can they can become more marketable and get more attention. Well, like Dennis Rodman. Yeah, man. That, that, that's I a mean, good example. He yeah. was like the hatchet man. <laughs> he was the guy that would go get, he'd foul out every game. Some of that was just him, but then yeah. he, he seemed to play it up even more. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That That's a good example of somebody who maybe there was something there to begin with, but he clearly made a point of, of making himself look that way. And as a result, you know, she became a more marketable person. Maybe not for a, you know, typical household good. Yeah, not for your kids. I want to play it safe, but for certain brands, this works really well. Mm. Does, um, I guess, is this, I guess this is true in every sport. I mean, even in tennis, some of the seemingly, you know, more cordial sports, you can have a villain. John McEnroe used to be the crybaby villain that, you know, had the anger issues. Yes, I, I don't think that's uh, that's sport specific. You're right. Uh, the, the the overall idea here is wherever there's competition. So sports, by their nature, involve competition, and the the competition makes makes people want to take sides. And, and in some cases, even if the the the, the desire to vilify somebody might be uh, leading us to find reasons to to vilify people or teams, even if they're not really there. Yeah. How interesting. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Vasilis Delakis, who is um, at Cal State University, San Marcos, and he is a visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports MBA program at San Diego State University. We're discussing an article he wrote in the conversation about why sports fans need villains. It's good business, folks. And when we come back, 
We'll talk about uh, some other franchises that have maybe even built a franchise around um, being the villain or the spoiler, sometimes we call them. Interesting psychology behind it all. Might even be good to be thinking about who in your life you've been villainizing because maybe you're using the same theory to just create a better story in life. Stick with us, helping you see the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Even the Beach Boys know that uh, the heroes and villains, you got to have both. The whole song here, heroes and villains. Joining us is Dr. Vasilis Delakis. He is uh, a professor of marketing at Cal State University, San Marcos, and is visiting professor of sports marketing at the Sports, sports MBA program at San Diego State University. Today he's talking to us about um, the, the need to villainize uh, a team, or a player, and how marketing sports marketers use that to create really a, a pretty complete story with hopefully eventually a struggle, a resolution, a beautiful ending where, you know, the the hero is made from the non-villain and, and overcomes the villain. Dr. Delacus, thank you again for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Is there... Um, so... Does this division where we create a villain, is it is it intentionally being created by marketing departments? Is it just a natural flow of like the sports journalists creating, always using these tragedy, heroic villain stories? How, how does it emerge? Is it intentional or is it just a byproduct of life? Well, well, in the context of sports, the, the, the nature of the competition has, has a lot to do with it because, obviously, for many fans, they, they have a, an affinity for a specific team to mm. begin with. And the ultimate goal is to see that team win the championship. So all the other teams are obstacles getting in the way of their team winning the championship. So just for that, you know, th- that's enough of a reason to dislike them. Right. Now, during the course of the, the competition, things are happening. You know, there are bad losses, bad calls, you know, stars leaving one team to go to another. So these are all reinforcing the desire to, to, dislike, to dislike the other team. So I would argue that, that the nature of sport is such that mm. this is almost inherent. It is, it's, it's an inevitable part of it. And, you know, one can argue it's also part of what makes the excitement and the enjoyment as hard as it is because... Sports provides really extreme emotions. You know, the, the elation when your team wins versus the agony when your team loses, and those emotions are magnified even more when it, it, they uh, they pertain to to the to the rivalry game because there, not only your team lost, but it lost to to the hated rival. Mm-hmm. So that makes the pain even more. And on the other side, if your team beats the rival, not only is your team won, but but the rival lost too, so so the joy and the and the ecstasy is even higher. And it, I mean, I guess that's true. The the metaphors we're always using are about war. We're going to battle. This is just the just the competition, the intensity of the competition. I've seen it just in little league sports. 
you know, that one team you can never get by in the championship becomes your rivalry and uh, your nemesis is – and I've never thought of it the way you brought it up, but it does it does actually create – it doubles almost the life of the league because I not only love my team, I hate that team and I love to see that they lose. So I'm always going to check two scores now instead of one score. Absolutely, and, and for a diehard fan – this is part of, of what being a diehard fan means. You know, being, being a Red Sox fan means you like the Red Sox, but automatically it also means the hatred for the Yankees and, and so on and so on for every rivalry. And, and that creates a much stronger interest in the league. Hmm. Do, do you know if the journalists become this crazy about it? Um, because it seems like their job would be to be fairly objective about the league. But they're also the ones writing these storylines and probably initiating some of the the fodder behind these these wars. Uh, yes, I, I I think definitely the the stories in relation to to the rivalries and the games that are being written contribute uh, to you know, the, the excitement of, of such competitions. I, I I don't know if they're doing it intentionally in the sense of of creating interest, but I, I think being being such a an inevitable part of sports, it's definitely something worth reporting and discussing. So it's not surprising that we see so many of the stories addressing that, including what happened in the summer with with Duran and the Warriors. It looked like almost every other article that was NBA related uh, mm-hmm. had. had you discuss that issue. Is uh, is there a downside to this? Do you that you see as a marketer uh, a downside to being branded the, the you know the villain or the brute? Uh, well, uh, th- there are a couple of downsides. One one is marketing related, and I think the other one is more social implications related. So on the, on the marketing level, um, there is the sponsorship and endorsement aspect of it, and. Uh, for many years, research has shown consistently that uh, the fans who liked a specific team or a specific athlete would uh, transfer that liking to brands that were associated with them. So sponsoring had uh, a very uh, important benefit in the sense that the brand would become more attractive and sell more product because of its connection to a team or athlete that people liked. Well, about 10 years ago or so, we did some research with NASCAR drivers trying to test, is the opposite true? So there is lighting transfer, is there also dislighting transfer? And we found with, with NASCAR fans that, not surprisingly, they had more positive responses to the brands that were associated with their favorite drivers, but also they had negative responses to the brands of the drivers they disliked. And this kind of created you know, more of a uh, research interest in me and, and other people where now we've been looking at the potential backlash of sponsoring a rival. Not, not uh, uh, an athlete that's uh, a villain because of a scandal or something bad they did, but because they're a villain simply, uh, they're a villain simply because they're associated with a rival team. Hmm. And consistently, the results are showing that this this could backfire. And in a uh, more recent study, we found out that actually, the um, even if we include information about the quality of the product, so-called some objective arguments, the diehard fans are still going to use the connection to the team as the primary factor. So they're willing to pick a so-called inferior product if it's connected to their team, 
over a so-called superior product, product if it's connected to the rival, confirming hmm. that diehard fans are not very rational, which we kind of knew. Yeah. But, but it also shows that from a marketing standpoint, especially the national companies have to be careful about how they sponsor and what a lot of brands now are doing is they're sponsoring both teams and this way they're avoiding the backlash. Oh, there you go. So, you know, Dunkin' Donuts is sponsoring both the Cubs and the White Sox and they're calling themselves official sponsor of Chicago baseball and I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it is. You're getting the love from everybody and you're getting, uh, you don't alienate anybody. Yeah. Uh, It also can be very advantageous for local sponsors because as much as uh, uh, fans in Philadelphia hate the Dallas Cowboys, they will never go to Dallas to buy a car. So if a local car right. dealership in Dallas sponsors the Cowboys, they get all the love from the Cowboy fans, and the hatred from the rest of the country is irrelevant because mm. they're not really marketing to them. So you, you can get around that. But the, the other issue is more of the social implications one. And Thankfully, it's not as big of an issue here in, in the United States. I mean, we have incidents, unfortunately, here or there, but I think it's more of the issue of aggression, where where the, the dislike and hatred for the villain becomes so strong that fans almost take it upon themselves not to inflict pain, yeah. either by attacking other fans or doing other uh, aggressive acts, like the, uh, the Alabama fan a few years ago that went and poisoned the trees mm-hmm. on the Auburn campus to, to make a statement about its rival. And I think that's the part where it, it stopped being just part of the fun and it's actually becoming dangerous. Like the hooligans in Europe... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. Do you do you sense one of the things the NFL is battling are some ratings issues and a ratings drop? Um, do you sense that this might be having any play in that? Just simply because the Patriots seem so dominant. Uh, I mean, there's if all of a sudden the dominant team is always winning against the good guys, would it lower ratings? Uh Actually, I would argue might might do the opposite because now you you'll be more likely to watch the next game because this is the game where the the villain might lose. So so you're excited about that. Frankly, I think with the NFL, it was just it, it just so happened that they had a lot of unexciting, poor quality, bad games early on, mm. including their primetime games, and that kind of hurt because during the primetime games, people don't have an option of watching something else, another NFL game. Right, they got one uh, game. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's great insight. As, as, uh, as we wrap up, I, I guess any advice for just us, the average fan who, doesn't, who seems to always end up um, you know, losing to the villain? The, the average fan who always loses to the villain? Yep. What do you do? How do you overcome that? That's 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 a, that's a hard one because the the challenge with sports, unlike the traditional entertainment, is they're unscripted. So with traditional entertainment, you find a way in the end to make the hero win over the villain. Right. But but in sports you can't do that. And I always remember a few years ago when Duke played Butler in the national championship game, and all of the country was rooting so hard for Butler. And I think it was fifty-one forty-nine, and Butler took a, a shot from from half court as the time was expiring it hit the rim and it went out and i remember turning to my friend and said if that was the movie would have gone in <laughs> you know? yeah so exactly it's it's, it's, it's true the, the only thing here is it's, it's the patience because the longer 
this pain lasts, the more exciting it will be that one time that it's over. And the Cubs are a great example of that. It wasn't a specific team that was the villain, but just the fact that they couldn't win. But, you know, the weight made, made the, uh, the excitement so much higher when it did happen. It's so true. So true. Dr. Vasilis Delakis, thank you again so much for your great work and uh, insight into why we need villains. Uh, continue your work there at Cal State University San Marcos and as visiting professor at uh, San Diego State University. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Caitlin Thomas about uh, maybe a, a date gone wrong and uh, find out why she has to villainize some of her past dates. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Well, with our younger generations becoming more and more dependent on technology, we're seeing a decline in the old social traditions. Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to talk about one aspect of our culture that she thinks shouldn't be forgotten and we should continue to pass down our to our kids. Caitlin Thomas, hello. Welcome to the show. Good morning. So um, this was about a d- dating. You're going to give some dating advice. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I have recently had to enter back into the dating, dating world. Dating world, yeah. Um, and let me tell you, it's still just as bad as I remember it being it ain't seven pretty. months ago. No. Is it? Is it? I just really hate it. Why? And it shouldn't be like this. It should shouldn't be dating, exciting. My mom's like, dating used to be so fun. And I'm like, <laughs> this isn't fun. You're like, quiet, mom. There's so many things missing that I think as... You know, parents need to remember to teach their kids. Right. Because I'm sure parents did a great job. Maybe they need to reteach it to their older millennial but children. I think the assumption is that they would listen to us. True. Because so they, maybe they can just have them listen to this and say, listen yeah. to what this young listen girl said. Listen to this, said. what this young, wonderful, amazing female producer just said. Just taught us. So here's what you need to reiterate to okay. your children. What is that sound? Uh, that is a sound turn of... Turn it off. That's the sound of a phone call. In the okay? middle of the date. If well, No, but if you're going to set up a date, text don't it. text him. No. See, you're saying call. Call them to set up the date. Well, why don't you just do it face-to-face? Well, because sometimes you get set up, and so, you know, someone... Like, my sister gave some guy my number and said, hey, call her. And he actually did. He called me, and that was impressive. I haven't been called for a date in years. That's great. But don't text. Like, no. I know texting is good to get to know each other, but... Write a letter. Yeah. Send it in the mail. Might take a little <laughs> bit longer to, to get a response. Jeff likes to write a letter to his... So, call. Remind your sons or your daughters, yeah, if they're going to ask, to call. Great advice. To Facebook and Instagram should not should not be used to set up a date. You can really? use it to, like, get How someone's phone number. No, get their phone number off of the social media and then call them. Don't ask me out right. over Facebook, um, please. Hi, this is Jerry. You gonna go out with me? You're... Like that? No. How about this? Use your best voice. Are you from Jamaica? No. Because Jamaican me crazy. <laughs> do you want to go out Thursday night? <laughs> See you guys. That was Boom. easy. That's how you do it, Jeffrey. Matt's even married, so put must that have in the letter. Here's a third one. It's a first date. If it's a first date, especially like a blind date or a setup, yeah. Don't plan a 12 million hour date. Why? Honestly, I you don't want an all day date? No. But we've kind of got you and we've already spent some money on you. So just a simple dinner or ice cream will suffice, honestly. That's good. 
That's good to know. Like you don't – the girl, especially if it's a setup, like you don't need – no. Just you don't want to be simple. trapped. Keep Yeah, keep it casual. Have a date where you can have lots of conversation. Easy enough. My mother-in-law went uh, skiing on a first date. Really? So had to be stuck with that guy on the ski lift and all the way back home. That's a long date. That's, yeah. And you know what? Guys Hmm? or girls, whoever asked the date, pick up your date. Should girls ask the date? Sure, why not? I know. Do they, though? Every time I tell the ladies around here that you ought to be asking guys out, they're disgusted with me. I don't, but I think you can. She doesn't need to do the asking. Yeah, no, I really should. Caitlin does. Okay, but I just went on a date and I had to drive. I didn't ask. I didn't plan the date, and I still had to drive. That's all right, right? No. Pick up your date. <laughs> what if What and if the person doesn't have a car? Date, when you pick up, but then you need to find someone that has a car. Ask your dad. <laughs> and then when you pick up your date, open the door for your date. Wow, this seems so old fashioned. I thought we were beyond all of no, this. No, we're not beyond this chivalry. Okay, good. It's not dead. And number six, um, yeah. So you're in. An, if you if you open the door, that's what your date's gonna say. Nailed it. She's gonna Nailed get you. It. Will she really? So when you when I shut the door, she would say. Nailed in, it. Yes, because that's what I said last night when my date opened the door. For so me. what if there's a couple in the back seat and you didn't know that and you're like nailed it? Well, there are worse things, right? Okay. Okay. Now here is six. Ah. If your date wants to go home. Or your date is pushing, saying, I should probably get home. Take your date home. But the long way, right? No. Take your date home. Really? If, if your date's mentioning they need to get home for something, take your date home. Don't try and convince them that going home is a bad idea. Did that happen to you? You seem... Quite possibly. And it was awkward. You seem angry. Like I was a little bit upset. You're like, I need to go home. And he's like, but... We're only a quarter of the way through the date. Through this 12 billion hour long date. Yeah. Yeah. Let your date go home. You seem really frustrated. Also. Um, We've only got time for one more. Last one. Excuse me. Excuse you. If your date says that they love something, it's probably a bad idea to talk about how much you hate that one thing. That's a great point. Don't do that. Makes it awkward. Take them home. Don't put down what they like. Lots of great lessons from Caitlin. Teach your children. Millennials. Please date the right way. Date the right way and call Caitlin at 801-572-2249. That's not what Caitlin I was Caitlin Thomas. For. She's available. Check her out on Tinder. <laughs> I'm not on Tinder. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.